Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatched, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And it's always a pleasure to take a few moments to be able to spend some time here on these Catholic airwaves to um, delve into a little bit more detail on um, on various um, topics and, and subjects that are I think are timely and of interest. And today I want to I want to delve into a, a little term that Pope Benedict the Sixteenth came up with some years ago, what he called a dictatorship of relativism. And um, you know the, those two terms together, if we understand what those two terms mean, putting them together is really there's kind of an odd pairing. Because when we think of a dictatorship, you know, we think of, you know, a subjective rule of one over many that, um, you know, the dictator is a guy that has absolute power and he just rules by decree. He does whatever he wants because that's what he wants to do. And um, and no one can really argue with him because usually if you try, you end up getting killed. Certain um, fa- famous dictators, you know, the, the number the number, the top one on everybody's list is always Adolf Hitler. But, you know, Mao Zedong and, you know, Mussolini and, you know, the various other, you know, dictators around the world, usually from communists and fascist regimes. Um, but then, so we have a dictatorship, which is kind of absolute rule of relativism. Well, what's relativism? Well, relativism um, is kind of the opposite of, of a dictatorship. It's that the, the idea of many, not just one, but of many people doing whatever they want only because that's what they want to do. Okay, and um, relativism, you know, we see it all over the place. It's the the culture and the cult and the and and the creed of most public universities, and sad to see a lot of Catholic universities. I remember some years ago there was a they had it was on one of the news stations, and they were interviewing college students, and they they interviewed this girl on the Notre Dame campus. Again, I've been on record as saying that if Notre Dame is Catholic, I'm the Pope. I think that if you go to Notre Dame University, you can probably get a good Catholic education if you go looking for it. If you went on the Notre Dame campus and you wanted to get a good Catholic education, you would have to ask around and say, okay, you know, who's the good scripture teacher? Who's the good philosophy teacher? Who's the good moral theology teacher? And things like that, and find out which ones are, you know, teaching what the church teaches. And um, proposing this as truth as opposed to the other teachers that are on campus that are, you know, basically relativists, and we'll look and see what that means. Because, again, um, this, this particular girl pretty much espoused what relativism was about when the, the question was being posed to various college students is very simple. How do you know what is right? How do you know what is wrong? You know, how do we determine what right and wrong is? How do we know what right and wrong is? And this girl, in total sincerity, I mean, she wasn't nasty or, you know, venomous or anything like that. But in total sincerity, she just says, well, um, I guess we find out what's right and wrong by how we feel about it. But since everybody feels differently, I guess we really cannot say what right and wrong are. And the thing is, the girl, in a certain sense, was spot on correct, you know, that if indeed right and wrong is determined by something as subjective as feelings rather than objective truth— or divine truth revealed to us by God. But if it is, if, if truth is really just a matter of feelings, of individual feelings, well, then she's right. There is no such thing as truth. And, you know, she's absolutely right. 
Um, but again, you know, this, this is a college student on a Catholic university campus, um, which again does not bode well for the rest of the country because, you know, I, you, you, I, I will guarantee you that if you go, you know, to K-State, KU, Fort Hayes or whatever and ask the average, you know, college freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, whatever, probably even graduate students and ask them how do you determine what right and wrong is, it would most of it would be right along those lines. They would say, well, it depends on how you feel about it. Um, you might feel that X, whatever X is, you can just put anything here you want. You may feel that abortion is wrong. You may feel that same-sex marriage is okay or not okay. You may feel, you know, whatever, but I feel differently. And so we just have to respect everybody's feelings and coexist and embrace tolerance and celebrate diversity and and everybody gets along. Okay, well, again, that's, that's you know, that's relativism. That's it in a nutshell. Um the thing is, is that, you know, I, I guess you know one of the famous lines that rings throughout history of the the, the, the greatest, most succinct um, statement of relativism comes from the lips of no other than Pontius Pilate, um, when Jesus is before Pilate in chapter eighteen of Saint John's Gospel. You know, Jesus says, "I came to testify to the truth. Everyone who hears my voice, you know, hears the truth." And Pilate responds with, "What is truth?" Okay, I mean, there, there's, you know, I guess you could say, you know, the, the patron saint of relativism is Pontius Pilate. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I remember um, years ago, and for the first seven years I was a priest, I was in Salina. And for whatever reason, I don't know how it worked out this way, but I ended up spending a lot of time with attorneys and social workers. And um, I remember there was there was a so there, I was talking with two social workers one time, a male and a female, and um, and the female social worker was just all up in the trees. She was really, really, really upset because she had worked very hard with a couple of unwed mothers. And, um, and she said, look, if you two ladies will get together and pool your resources, we can help you out quite a bit. And, and the two unwed mothers were um, obviously very irresponsible, as they will soon prove, but they were amenable to that idea. And so um, the, this one particular social worker, um, I'll just call her Beth, Beth gets these two cases together and, and gets them with the, the – there was the two women, and between the two women, they had five illegitimate kids, and, um, and they were going to get together and live in the same apartment. And if they would live in the same apartment, then they could pool the money they would get from the taxpayer – to pay, you know, for the to help with their rent assistance and their food assistance, you know, the food stamps and things like that, and the utilities and so on. And if they would, if they by pooling, you know, their resources like that, they could, you know, rent a, a you know, an entire house for themselves and have plenty of room for themselves and for their kids. They would just have to learn how to get along. And 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 these two women were agreeable to that, and so they did. And so, um, you know, the the social worker, Beth, thinks she's doing a good job. You know, I got these two people together and things are working really well here and everything. And then as is her job, you know, her, her responsibilities require her then to go in and follow up and um, and see how, you know, how these um, two women are doing with their illegitimate kids and so on and see how everything's all going. And um, she and this is about the time I ran into her and another social worker named Rod. And the two of them, you know, the, what, what, her, what, what Beth's issue was, was she goes, I go into this house and there is a brand new, the, the, the living room was full of brand new living room furniture. And the two bedrooms that the, that the women had was both full of, of brand new bedroom furniture. And I said, where did you get this furniture from? 
And they said, well, we had some money left over from the money we were getting from the government, from the taxpayer, to, you know, by the time we paid our rent and, pay, and paid our utility bills and, you know, and so on, we had a little bit of money left over. So we went to the rent-to-own place, and we found out that we could rent all this furniture for about the same amount that we had left over. So we went and rented the furniture. And, you know, Beth is just pulling her hair out, and she says, you know, you can't do this. You know, this isn't why the, the state and the taxpayer is helping you out with this so you can go rent new furniture. And, you know, she's pulling her hair out over the deal. Well, then Rod, the relativist, says, but Beth, you don't understand. That is not their reality. That is not their reality. And it's like, I'm sitting there going, Rod, there is no such thing as my reality and your reality. Reality is reality. You know, it is what it is. Um, there might be different perceptions of the reality. You know, again, the, these ladies obviously have a very strange perception of what it means to be living at the beneficence of the taxpayer and then not being responsible with, with what's being entrusted to them. They were very bad stewards. That's the reality, you know, and, and they're, they're, but their perception of the reality is, well, no, we have this extra money. We can do it as we please, even, even if it's irresponsible. And so, but again, this, uh, this idea of saying, well, but your reality and my reality are not the same thing. Well, no, our perceptions, our interpretations of the reality might not be different, but the reality itself is what it is. And see, that's the thing that the moral relativist does not want to, does not want to, um, not, does not want to um, concede that point. And so I, I think that, you know, when we look at this idea of relativism, you know, the first thing that we want to do is, um, you know, we, we want to, you know, kind of pick this apart. You know, one of the, one of the, the, the patron saint of, of the public secular university is a philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. And I mean, this guy was, was, a real, was a real case. I mean, he died from paralysis that he contracted from syphilis. And, you know, you know syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease. And so here you have a guy who's living the dream you know, of the 21st century of, you know, having no rules and, 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 and you know, no, no moral um, constraints on him whatsoever. And he contracts this STD, um, it, you know, and, it, and as syphilis does, it affects your brain. It eventually kind of drives you crazy. And, but it paralyzed him. And he died from that. But um, one of his great lines is, there are no facts, only interpreted facts. Okay, so Nietzsche, again, this is a guy who, um, you know, again, I, I think if you went to the average university and talked to the average student on campus, unless you happen to run into a philosophy student and ask who Nietzsche was, they would have no idea. But they have been formed by Nietzsche's ideas. Um, his ideas, you know, start off in the in the, the upper echelons of university life, and they work their way down, you know, through the faculty, and then ultimately into the into the skulls of the of the students. But again, you've got Nietzsche saying there are no facts; there are only interpreted facts. Or you have Pontius Pilate saying, "What is truth?" Or you, again, you have this girl on the Notre Dame campus saying, "Well, you know, right or wrong is determined how you feel about it, and since everybody feels differently, you can't really tell what right and wrong are." Okay, I mean, so you can see this is all kind of coming. You know, there are various um, ways this, this is coming from different different directions, but saying it based, saying essentially the same thing. You know, this is what relativism is about. Well, you know, Thomas Aquinas, you know, t you know, took aim at this in the Summa Theologica. And I think that if you if you stop and think a little bit, you know, it doesn't take much to pick this apart and to, you know, figure out exactly why this all goes bankrupt. Because I could just go to let's go back to old pal Nietzsche here. When Nietzsche says there are no facts, there are only interpreted facts. OK, well, stop and think about that. Why does that ultimately not hold water? 
And in fact, when I used when I used to teach high school students at TMP, I would I would bring this up to the kids, and you know I would have high school you know 15, 16, 17 year olds that see right through this. You know, there are no facts. There are only interpreted facts. What's wrong with that statement? Stop and think. We'll do something you're not supposed to do on radio. We're going to have dead space. So there are no facts. There are only interpreted facts. Why doesn't that hold together? Stop and think. Here comes the dead time. Okay, dead time's up. Why doesn't that work? Well, obviously, because, Mr. Nietzsche, if I am to take you seriously, your statement, there is no such thing as facts, only interpreted facts, I would have to accept that statement as a fact. Okay? When you have people say, you know, you have pilots saying, there's, you know, what is truth? There's no such thing as truth. There's just how people feel about it. Well, then I have to accept that statement. There's no such thing as truth as true. Okay, and this is the place where this whole relativism thing, again, just falls on its face and how it is able to continue on, you know, when, when it, you know, picking it apart like that is so easy is the most remarkable thing. And, you know, we kind of ask ourselves, well, why is it that it's able to hold together in, in, and have such a stranglehold on the imagination the way it does? And I think the, the, the answer is quite simple. You know, every little kid. You know, whenever we're little kids, you know, the, the dream of every, you know, nine-year-old is I want to do whatever I want to do. And I don't want mommy or daddy or teacher or anybody telling me what to do. I want to do whatever I want to do. And, and again, in, in a nine-year-old's mind, that's what freedom is. You know, again, we, we, you know, as we get older, we kind of come to understand that that's not freedom at all. That's called licentiousness. And it's a recipe for disaster, as Friedrich Nietzsche found out. But nonetheless, though, when we when when we have this idea though that is is that freedom means doing whatever the heck I want, um, that is a recipe for disaster. And when we look at the at the way that it gets lived out, you know it, it's pretty bad news. And so again, I think you know you, you look around wherever when wherever it is you look around at um, very in, in on the college campuses and people's relationships um, at work, you know, and so on. And sad to say, you know, the, the second half of this program is going to be even up to it, including the Supreme Court. Um, we're going to find that whenever people have this attitude that freedom means just doing whatever the heck I want to do, um, we're going to find out that, that that always just that all that brings with it is moral and social chaos, and a lot of people end up getting hurt. And so, um, again, I think that when we look at this idea, what Pope Benedict XVI called the dictatorship of relativism, um, you know, we have to we have to really kind of be on the on the watch for this and see where it's at, so that we can identify it for what it is and then defeat it. Because again, how do why we why would we call this a dictatorship of relativism? Why would we call it a dictatorship? Well, it's really quite simple. Um, if you talk to anybody who really has thought this stuff through. Um, you know, if you if you get a if you get a, a college student where you sit the college student down and say, OK, tell me about right and wrong. And then, well, it depends on how you feel about it. OK, well, again, C.S. Lewis has a has a great line on that. And he says that, you know, when you have people who are who basically claim to be, be relativists, the second you violate one of their rights, they will be the first to appeal to a higher realm of authority to say to say why you can't do that. And so, again, I'm not proposing anybody do this. This would be very bad. This is just to kind of make the point. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not suggesting anybody actually go out and do this um, because you'd probably find yourself in jail. But, you know, like when, when you have the, the girl on the Notre Dame campus saying, well, there really is no right and wrong. It depends on how you feel about it. It's like, okay, well, and so you go from you punch the girl in the face. 
right? And, and, and what would she do? She would call the police, which is what she should do. You know, she's been assaulted. You know, there's no reason. You know, people can't go around punching other people in the face. But then you would say, but Tootsie, you're the one that just told me that there's no such thing as right and wrong. You told me that right and wrong depends on how people feel about things. And right now, I just felt like punching you in the face. So why can't I do that? Well, you can't do that. Well, why not? You just got through telling me that right and wrong depends on how you feel about it. And that's how I felt. Okay. And but again, as Lewis says, when when you have some one of these relativists that goes around saying there's no such thing as truth and no such thing as right and wrong, the instant they get the sense that their rights are being violated, the first thing they're going to do is to appeal to some higher objective authority as to why, no, you cannot take my stuff away from me, or no, you cannot punch me in the face, or no, you cannot, you know, take away my freedom or my liberty or whatever. Okay, and and so again, I think that it's it's um, you know Lewis kind of has a you know has more of a practical way to debunk this whole thing that um, that again you know the the people the the relativists that want to sit there and say well there's no such thing as truth and there's no such thing as right and wrong unless and until you know their little world is being upset somehow then of course they're going to go back they're going to push back with everything they have and they're going to appeal to objective standards of right and wrong that they believe that everybody should should adhere to and again i certainly believe that it's an objective truth that you should not be able to go punch other people in the face you know just because you don't like them or don't agree with them or whatever and um, you know, I think any reasonable person would say that. But when you have people at one and the same time saying there's no such thing as truth, it just depends on how you feel about it. But then relying, you know, again, having, having a subjective worldview so they can go off and do whatever they want. But then wanting an objective worldview, in other words, objective means um, standards that everybody has to agree with. Okay, that um, that they you know they re- they they want a subjective worldview so they can do what they want, but an objective worldview so you know to protect themselves from other people doing what they want. Again, you can see this is just hopelessly confused, and um, you know it, it's worth you know kind of looking into and trying to figure out exactly what's going on in these people's skulls. And so, you know, where does this relativism then turn into a dictatorship? Well, it turns into a dictatorship when the when the relativists take over such things as the universities, education, the media, the government, and so on, and then impose this relativism on everybody else. And again, if you if you just want to you want to see how dictatorial the relativism gets. You know, go to a college sociology class or, again, it's kind of interesting. You know, you kind of come, coming back to social workers. I've dealt with um, college students at the campus center before who were majoring in social work. You know, they, were, they wanted to become social workers because my guess is they think they can go out and try to help people and maybe help people get, you know, have better lives, which is certainly a, a good and noble thing. But um, go into one of these at one of these social work thingies in situations and say, you know, um, it looks like these a lot of people would be much better served if the women and the men would get married, have their babies, and stay married. Okay. In other words, you know, there's sort of a there's sort of an objective um, there's an objective um, set of criteria, an objective set of circumstances here where children seem to thrive. Most children seem to do better. The vast majority, like 99% of children, seem to do better when their mommies and daddies are married and they stay married and provide a stable home for the children in which to be raised. 
And, of course, social workers, what are they dealing with? Most of the time they're dealing with abandoned children, illegitimate children, children of unwed mothers, trying to work with the unwed mothers and get them some training so they can support their illegitimate kids and things like that. And and so if you're, you know, again, if you want to see how open-minded and tolerant and inclusive the university community is, just suggest in your social work class, you know, why don't we come up with some kind of a campaign to encourage people to get married, have babies, and stay married? Oh, that would be too judgmental. Really? Because one of the things I've kind of noticed, this is kind of an interesting thing. Whenever there's an accident, you might notice this. There'll be an accident and someone gets killed. And they'll go, you know, you know, John Smith, you know, died, you know, when his car, you know, rolled on a rural road, da 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 da, da. And then at the end, they always say, Mr. Smith was not wearing a seatbelt. Okay? And it's like, well, why should that matter? He's dead, you know. But the thing is, is that there's a, a big campaign to try to get people to wear their seatbelts. And so by throwing that little dig in, Mr. Smith was not wearing his seatbelt. That's kind of a, that's, again, that's sort of a little dig that's like, well, I guess he kind of deserves it, doesn't he? Why? Because there is objective data that seems to indicate that wearing seatbelts would save lives when people, if people have wrecks in cars. And so here you have somebody who, who, who willingly chose, to use the C word, who willingly chose not to wear his seatbelt, and he got killed as a result. And so the, you know, the news story will kind of throw that in. It's like almost like he deserved it, right? And, um, and so it's okay to you know, come down hard on someone for not obeying the objective data of wearing a seatbelt that somehow or another that shows them to be less of a person. Or what about cigarette smoking? You know, you have, you know, they'll, you'll have some, usually I see these a lot of times like with, with celebrities and so on, where you'll have some movie star or somebody, whatever, that um, dies from heart disease or cigarette smoking or whatever, and they'll say, you know, Joe Schmo, a lifelong smoker, or, you know, Janie Jones, a former smoker, you know, died from lung cancer today and everything. And so, you know, again, they throw that little dig in. It's like, you know, this person used to smoke. And the data shows us that smoking causes cancer. And so, by th- you know, it's like, do we need to know this person used to smoke? All we have to, you know, it's like you have this person who maybe you liked watching, you know, perform in movies or act in movies. Or you like listen to their records, listen to them sing or whatever the case might be. And they died. And so that's kind of a, you know, a, a worthwhile news story. But they always throw that little dig in, you know, well, you know, they, they, they used to smoke. And so therefore, you know, it's almost like they deserved it. Or when you look at, um, at health insurance or life insurance, you know, if, if someone's overweight, if someone smokes, if someone's a diabetic or whatever, they're going to pay more for health insurance or they're going to pay more for life insurance or they're not going to get as much life insurance for the same amount of money. And again, if you were to go up to someone and say, is that is that right? Is that fair? Most people would say, well, sure it is. You know, why should – if you have someone that's going to engage in this destructive behavior, shouldn't they pay more? You know, why not? Okay. And so it's like, okay, that sounds good to me. Let's look at the gay lifestyle. You know, the gay lifestyle carries with it all sorts of things. You know, the vast majority of all AIDS cases are, you know, from practicing homosexuals, as is, you know, then they have higher incidences of hepatitis and domestic violence and alcoholism and drug abuse and so on. Um, Gay people, active homosexuals, die at a younger age than people who are not active homosexuals. And so what if there was to be, you know, a gay surcharge on health insurance or a gay surcharge on life insurance? You know, how, how far would that go? 
well, it would not go very far at all because, you know, the gay movement has a very well-organized, um, you know, very well-organized, well you know, machine that would kick into high gear and get the media going and everything about how, you know, this is hate and whatever else. It's like, well, you know, it works with smokers. It works with people who don't wear their seatbelts. Why wouldn't it work with, you know, people who engage in, in reckless sexual activity and, you know, re- you know reap the, 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 the terrible consequences? Well, again, moral relativism. Relativism is I want to do whatever the heck I want. And, um, you know, don't you get in my way unless, of course, you doing what you want is going to hurt me. And then I'm going to all of a sudden appeal to objective standards of, of behavior again and think that somehow or another this all makes sense. And so, again, I think that when we, when we look at the, this dictatorship of relativism, it's something that's being imposed. You know, relativism is being imposed on people, um, again, in the culture at large and certainly in the colleges and universities, that anybody who says no, you know, I believe there are objective standards of behavior um, to which everyone should, um, you know, should at least aspire to comply. Um, and, you know, beginning with the Ten Commandments and, and certainly, you know, maybe the laws of the state of Kansas and the Constitution of the United States and things like that. But, um, but again, if you, if you try to sit there and say that, you know, there are these objective laws, you know, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery and so on, that these should be obeyed by everyone, the relativist jumps up and says no. And then, again, they have all kinds of really nasty ways um, to shut people down, not the least of which is to give them lower grades. You know, the, if, a, if, if, a, if a college student stands up for objective truth and morality in school, in a lot of classes, they'll get a lower grade. Um, I suppose, you know, probably in a lot of, in, in a lot of academic settings, in, you know, suppose we have this, all this so-called academic freedom, you know, people would lose their jobs. I've talked to professors at, K, at Fort Hayes that say, I have to be very careful about what I say around who. Because if I say the wrong thing around the wrong person, um, not only will I probably never get tenure, um, but also um, I could lose my job. I'm going, really? All this in the university setting where supposedly in the university setting, what are we wanting to do? We are pursuing truth at all costs. And um, in the university setting, if, if, you know, the truth comes up and if the truth, you know, doesn't set well with us, well, that's just too bad because it's the truth. At least that's the way it used to be. But now, you know, because of the dictatorship of relativism, the little relativistic dictators, you know, which again, which, you know, rule supreme and then the media and good sized chunks of the government and in, in academia, you know, if you stand up against them, you know, you can lose your job and, and, you know, get a lower grade, you know, fail a class, whatever. There are sanctions. And so, again, you know, we see that these, these relativistic dictators are, are all over the place. So, um, again, in the first half of the program, I want to talk about that. But in the second half coming up, we're going to talk about a, a great dictator of relativism, um, Anthony Kennedy, um, who up to fairly recently was on the Supreme Court. And um, we'll, we'll kind of see some of the things that he said over his illustrious career. And, again, this isn't to say that um, Kennedy himself you know, had hatched this as something new and then imposed it upon the country. But he certainly is a, a, a reflection or a sounding board of way of a lot of people think. So that pretty much does it for the first half of the program. We'll take a little break now and hear from the folks that sponsor our programming here. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. <laughs> 